This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me, and I'm bringing you two interviews this week for the price of one. That price remains zero dollars and zero cents. This remains a free podcast. I talked to John Gruber, the famed Apple observer, about the Apple versus Epic slash Fortnite antitrust trial, which got underway this week. And I also talked to Jill Lepore, who's a historian at Harvard and a writer for The New Yorker, and also, of course, has a podcast. It's called The Last Archive. And we had a weighty conversation about truth and doubt and what it all means and how it's all changed. Sometimes we do light and fluffy conversations, and these are two of the denser conversations I've had recently. So you need your thinking caps for these. I certainly need my thinking cap for them. You can see me, you can hear me a couple different times with with Jill Lepore sort of struggling to keep up with her because she's brainy. But, uh... That's good. We like brainy stuff here. By the way, I did ask you guys if, if you wanted me to continue doing these sort of short updates at the beginning of the podcast. A bunch of you said yes, so I think we'll keep doing them. That's what I thought we'd be doing for the uh, antitrust trial bit of the conversation today, but I ended up talking to John Gruber instead, and, and John talks for a while, so that's good. You get more John instead of less me. That's a better deal, I think. Okay, you be the judge. Here is John Gruber from Daring Fireball. John Gruber, welcome back. Ah, it's good to be here, Peter. Thanks for coming. Thanks for making time. We're not going to take a lot of time, but I wanted to check in with you about the Epic Apple case and the trial. We're recording this on Wednesday, so we're we're two and a half days into the trial. I assume you are following it closely, although I I noticed you not a lot of coverage on Daring Fireball, so I figured we just go straight to the source and you don't have to type anything. You can just talk. It's easier. (laughs) You know, it is easier to talk about, especially at this point. Um, I am following, but I am not following hour by hour. It just does that just doesn't seem like a good use of my time. I mean, so I'm trying to get the daily updates and I'm I'm looking at I mean, obviously the big juicy part that's coming out of this are the emails that come out through um uh, what's the process called whatever, you know, being entered discovery. into evidence. Yeah, discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of a spoiler here. All this stuff was uploaded into the court system last week. So if you wanted to you could have gotten all this last week, um, but no one wants, wants to actually go through all that. Before we go into the particulars of, of, of what we've heard, because we can't see, uh, we've, been, we've been listening to these right. calls and looking at documents. Uh, let's just talk about the case broadly. I think anyone who's listening to the show understands the, the broad outlines, right? This is Epic arguing that, that Apple is a monopolist uh, because of the way they run the App Store. You are someone I, I often refer to as a, re, think of and refer to as an Apple enthusiast. So I would think you are mostly sympathetic to Apple in this case. But I think also you have been increasingly critical about the way Apple runs the App Store over the last few years. So before we get to the specifics of, of Epic and Apple, what's your overall take on the way Apple runs the store and, and what you'd like to see from them? Uh well, you thought you said it was going to be a short show. Uh, <laughs> I, I would, I, th- I think it's useful to break this down. Mm-hmm. I, I took, there's a note I wrote before coming on this show. What exactly is Epic asking for? And I know you're asking me my take on the Apple store, but I kind of feel like Epic's suit is a good prism to break a very broad range of complaints out into some discrete ideas. What exactly is Epic hoping for? I've got three big ways that Epic could win. The biggest would be their request to force Apple to allow quote-unquote side-loading or even alternate app stores. In other words, a way to put a native 
application written to the APIs of iOS onto an iPhone just by, like the way you can on a Mac or on Windows, you can just go to a developer's website, download their app, click a permission thing you know, on your phone, and now you've got the app and it didn't go through the App Store. Uh, that would be the biggest win because then the app could do whatever they want. They're not subject to any of Apple's rules. If they want to do their own payment processing and whatever else we can get to, they could do it. I don't think that's going to happen, but that would be the the biggest way that Epic could win and Apple could lose. Two, would it in the middle, would be to force Apple to allow developers, still going through the App Store, but to offer their own in-app purchase mechanism for consumable content on the device. And I think if Epic got that, they would say, ah, sure, that's a, that, that's enough of a win for us because we're losing, they, they see this as losing 30, 20, maybe 25%, let's say out of the 70-30 split for in-app purchases in Fortnite. If they could do it on their own, they'd probably save you know 25%. And, and the rest would go to credit card payment processing. And you lose a lot of that to refunds and stuff like that. So call it 5%. That's in the middle. And then the third would be, what if Apple were forced to just allow apps through the App Store to just tell the user that you can sign up for this by going to our website? Leave the app, go to our website and sign up. Go, you know, So Netflix, you mm-hmm. you can't sign up for Netflix in the app anymore because they uh, Netflix doesn't want to. This years ago, a couple years ago, stopped paying Apple to do it. But it's sort of a mystery. I wrote about this. It's it's really. I, I think they still have it. Where if you just download Netflix on an iPhone or iPad right. and you don't have a Netflix account, it is kind of baffling because it doesn't tell you what to do. It's like, hey, do you, do you have an account? Sign in. But the whole reason, let's say some hypothetical person who is finally getting Netflix now in 2021, it, it's really kind of baffling. It doesn't say you have to go to our website, click here, go to Netflix and sign up. You have a you have an unworking app, basically, right. and, and there's no obvious way to figure out how to make it work. I mean, Google, Google would tell you, but 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 if you were if you if you're that theoretical person who's downloaded the app and doesn't know how to make it work, you would. Right. know. And why why doesn't it just tell you to go to the website? and sign up because Apple does not allow it. That's against the rules of the App Store. Um, breaking that, uh, forcing Apple to, to relent on that would be the, the, the narrowest win for a company like Epic. But I still think it would be a win. And to me, that's where I fall. To me, it's these rules against explaining to the user what the rules are. In other words, that Epic can't tell you we have to sell you our V-Bucks through the app. But if you wanted to, you can go to epicgames.com or whatever their website is and sign up for V-Bucks there and save 30%. Even though you couldn't do it in the app, you'd have to leave. You know, Just telling people you could save 30% by doing it this other way. It's th- that to me is where Apple's stewardship crosses a line. Like the, these rules against explaining the rules. The standard response to all this is, this is Apple's property. It's Apple's store that they built on their property. If you don't like it, you don't need to sell anything um, through it. And you cannot walk into Home Depot and find a product there with an ad, with a sign saying, by the way, you can get this cheaper at Lowe's. Um, which to a lot of people sounds, well, that kind of makes sense, right? Of course you can't do that at Home Depot. Why, why should the rules be different for Apple? I, I, and I think that breaks down a little bit in a way that real world to digital 
analogies often break down where what's the definition of the store? Like it, so I would say that it makes absolute sense in the actual app store itself. Like if you're interested in Fortnite, this new game that you've heard of, and, and you go to the app store, you search for Fortnite, you go to the page for the Fortnite app, their listing in the app store wouldn't tell you, you could also go to, you know, instead mm-hmm. of paying whatever right here, you could go to our website, you know, the listing in the app store. The question is, when does the app itself still stay part of the store, right? And that's where it breaks down because you can buy something at Lowe's, take it home, you open the box, they tell you what their website is inside the instructions of whatever it is you bought. You know, you can, there's, after that, your relationship is with the company that made the mm-hmm. thing, not with Lowe's. And you you can sign up for stuff and they can tell you at that point, you could sign up for a mailing list and they can tell you that they're running a big discount at Home Depot for peripherals for the lawnmower you just bought or whatever it is. Lowe's is out of the loop at that point, right? And it's like at this point, once you go to the app store and you download the app, how much of your relationship is direct with the developer of the app and how much still goes through Apple. With Apple's rules that in-app purchases for consumable content on the device still have to go through Apple. It's sort of like you're, you're, if you want to sell subscriptions or in-app content, your app is always considered part of the store. And I, you know, that to me feels a little... There, mm, Epic has know. two counters to that counter. One is when you take when you buy anything else and take it home it's yours and you can do whatever you want with it why right. why does apple get to control what i do with the iphone once i've bought it uh and the other is apple is monopolist because it controls distribution of what i can put onto my phone uh right it's a monopolist over right. apple products and that's a legal argument that generally hasn't found a lot of purchase historically there's one case called kodak where it does work but in general, what do you right. again, those seem like pretty good common sense or I mean the the Apple having monopoly on Apple products I think is hard for people to get their head around, but they, they seem like important ideas and I'm curious what you think about them. Well I I guess they do. I mean, you know, it, it's like my framing of the word monopoly goes back to the nineties and the big Microsoft case. Um and it was beaten into my head at the time following that case that the problem, people hear monopoly and they think that must be illegal or wrong and it's bad, it's against the law. And it's not. It's just that if you qualify as a monopoly, different rules apply to you as a company, mm-hmm. as a somebody who, who has a monopoly. And it's, it's abuse of the monopoly that's the problem or using it to tie one market into another. And so to me, trying to argue whether or not Apple has a monopoly over the iPhone or not is it's just sort of semantic nonsense. Well, of course they do. They they control it very tightly. That's I guess that's the definition of it. But how how much government regulators should look at it varies, you know, greatly with how many people use it. And it it is an interesting situation as a longtime Apple observer pundit whatever you want to call me. It is certainly a very different place to be. I mean, uh, for something like and and you know in the United States estimates are around fifty percent you know that fifty percent of people's smartphones are iPhones that's clearly not a majority but it's a lot uh, as to the specific question of whether a company that makes a computing platform has a right to be 
controlling over everything that goes on to it? I would say yes, and that competition will let it work out. And it's complicated. And, and the only way you can ever have a fair argument about it is to accept that it requires quite a bit of nuance, and you have to accept that there are trade-offs on both sides, that there are definitely very cool apps and ideas for apps that we're not seeing today and we haven't seen for the entire lifespan of the iPhone because Apple won't allow them on the platform. And in some sense, some of those ideas would be good and therefore we're losing something by them not being there. But on the other side of the trade-off is there's all sorts of stuff that Apple's system protects people from. And from a Typical, I mean, and, and we can get caught up on this as enthusiasts and people who are technical experts to some degree or, or not. But for very typical users, it is absolutely the truth that owning a regular PC, whether it's Mac or Windows, you can very easily get yourself into a situation where you've installed X, Y, and Z on your system. And not even talking about malware, but actually just software that you voluntarily decided to install, but it mm -hmm. puts components in the system level and extensions, and one thing leads to another, and now all of a sudden your computer has problems because of software you've installed. And that really doesn't happen with the App Store model. And that's a huge relief to a number, an inordinate number of people, that there's this platform it's where... It's harder for you to you screw really it up. Can't, it's very hard for you to screw it up. You really can't. It, and if you can screw it up, it's a bug in the system. Right. If everything's working as intended, there's nothing you can do. That I was shocked to discover my kid had, and had, you had brought some malware into an airbook, uh, a Mac airbook, uh, the other day, because uh, I'm so not used to seeing it, that at all. He must have tried very hard to get some bogus software on there. <laughs> yeah, it it definitely happens. It really can, and it's inherent to the model of uh, allowing the user, if they, you know uncheck some boxes or say okay to some permission dialogues. Yes, I'm really sure I want to install this. You're allowed to shoot yourself in the foot. And it's it really is a tremendous advantage of the iOS model or even Android by default where where sideloading is optional but off by default that you can't put anything onto your phone that you can, you're more than a tap, hold and delete from so removing it completely. And you don't have to dig into the system and, and fish out the extensions that the software left behind or the background agents that are still running silently. So let's, None let's talk about uh, this week in court. Again, we're, we're two and a half days into it. Um, if, if you've been paying attention, we means that basically we got to hear Tim Sweeney, the CEO of, of Epic, on the stand for a day and a half, or I think seven hours total. Based on what you've read, listened to, followed, what, what has been interesting to you? It's, what, what, what is revelatory or interesting? I don't think anything's revelatory. I think it's, you know, I, I think it's pretty much what we expected from the upfront uh, materials that the and arguments that both companies have made. I mean, one thing that's very interesting about it, and I do think that the first few days of the trial show it, is there doesn't seem to be any middle ground where the two companies could settle. Right. Isn't I mean, and I don't know how common that is. You know, it, it seems like if you just to name one example with the Google Oracle site uh, or lawsuit that was just settled after more than a decade over the Java APIs, it seems like that could have been settled at some point 
by I Google think, writing I think you're right. Check. I mean, Epic you know. is saying we don't want monetary damages. So it's not a matter of like, you know, we want right. a dollar and you're going to give us 50 cents and we'll meet at 75. It's we want you to make a, a, a systematic change in the way your entire ecosystem works. And by the way, at least 20% of your business works, a hugely important part of your business. Uh, so you can imagine why Apple would be digging in on that. Um, so it doesn't seem like there's a compromise there. Um, and, and, as, and, and by the way, there, there's the, both sides, lawyers have told all of us that there shouldn't be any surprises. They've been told to the judge to not to do anything theatrical. So everything has been sort of laid out in advance. Um, are you getting any value out, out of, out of following the discussions? Not so far, really. It's the discovery that to me has been the most interesting. Um, I, I do think that the one thing that was a little interesting was, and I've been intrigued by this, is Epic is suing Apple, and this is very high profile. They're also suing Google, but that doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be going anywhere. And to me, their arguments with Google are a little bit, hmm, I don't, I'm not quite sure why they're even suing there. I kind of feel like maybe Epic was ready for Apple. Definitely, they were ready for Apple to revoke Fortnite from the store, and they were ready to go to court. They had the commercial ready to go. I think maybe they were a little surprised that Google did the same thing, because Google allows sideloading. There is an Epic app store for Android that you can install on your, I have it on my Android yeah. phone, and you can still get, even though Fortnite was removed. But the, the bigger question is, okay, you're objecting to Apple over this mandatory 70-30 split of in-app purchases. But Epic has active relationships with Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft for the Switch, PlayStation, and Xbox platforms, which have, yep. guess what, 70-30 revenue splits and no sideloading. And what what is your objection, Epic, to Apple when they seem to be running this with the exact, you know, to the percentage point, same split and the same basic rules? And their argument is something, something hand wavy about gaming consoles are a different model and it's a different universe because they typically mm -hmm. sell them at a loss the hardware and the whole model is based on making it up with the 70 30 split on software. But that, that to me is not a legal argument. That's a publicity. That's a PR argument. And, and there's a certain intuitive sense where I'm sure a lot of people hear that and, and might agree. Uh, but I, from a legal perspective, I don't see how it holds any water at all. And Apple pressed Sweeney on this. And, and to me, it is sort of like if Epic gets a big win out of this and the, the, the stranglehold that Apple has over their own platform is somehow ruled illegal, there's no doubt in my mind that Epic would then take this and go against the con, the game consoles too. Why wouldn't they want to get their, you know, their Epic store on, on the other ones too. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the things the Apple lawyers have, have done a good job of is pointing out that one, that, that, that there's lots of stuff that, that, uh, Epic is complaining about with regards to Apple, that it is not complaining about, at least in court, um, with the other platforms. And two, that pointing out that, that Sweeney has done some very hard edge bargaining with the likes of Sony, um, you know, threatening to sue them and eventually extracting an investment and, and, all of which gets to one of my questions, do some armchair psychology. There's very clearly a business reason for Epic to do this, right? There's a lot of money at stake. But Sweeney says a lot that he is personally aggrieved by Apple, that he used to be an Apple fanboy, that he took, that he he's one of the early Apple enthusiasts, you know, a very sort of rare character that runs a big company these days, that like a guy who actually was building the stuff and loved early computers and software. And he yeah. feels like Apple has some gone against its its founding principles and has become something different. Um, 
of course, just saying something out loud and saying something on Twitter doesn't make it so. Um, but it seems like he believes it. Do you think that he believes that that he's actually doing something that's sort of on behalf of the world that is bigger than Epic? I think maybe to some degree, yes. I do think I, I, I'm cynical enough to think that it's mostly about the money. But I do think that he is I, I get the impression that he is of the side that he would genuinely if somehow he were divested of all of his ownership in Epic and completely retired and had no more financial stake in it, that he is of this sort of enthusiast mindset that he would rather see the iPhone platform run more like the Mac in terms of allowing people to just install whatever they want and tinker with it with some sort of warning so that you know, and we call it the jailbreak community. It's nowhere near as big a thing as it was in the earlier days of the iPhone. But there were some really cool stuff that developers made for the early couple of years of iPhone where it was like system-wide features, things that you don't think an app could do, but a way to like change what happens when you swipe down from the top of the very top of the screen and have a different set of uh, system-wide controls that come down are available everywhere, that sort of thing. And I do think that he would rather see the iPhone run that way, but I don't think he's acknowledging like I said to you earlier on the show, just how problematic that could be for so many people, typical right. non-enthusiast right. people. Um, and so the conventional wisdom about the case is that it's going to be very difficult for Epic to win. Um, and then the other conventional wisdom, which I've, I've typed up under my own name, is that this is one problem for Apple, but really the problem for Apple is everyone's going after the App Store model now. Spotify is going after them and seems to be making headway. They got a, a favorable ruling from the EU. The UK is looking into it. Australia is looking into it. Uh, in the US, where most of the focus on sort of tech reform is focused on social media, there's a new drumbeat. Amy Klobuchar is going to make Apple a focus. Do you think that at some point the rules that Apple uses to set up the App Store are going to change in a significant way, one way or another, whether it's the Epic case or something else? I do. I think I think it almost has to. And I, I kind of feel like Epic is not the right poster child to be leading the charge against Apple. And, and specifically because they just and I don't mean to dismiss games as as a revenue driver. And trust me, I've got a teenage son. I know how important video games are compared to when I was a teenager, when they were a very big deal. But Epic, it goes back to what I said about Epic's relationship with Apple really isn't that different than their relationship with Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo. And yet they're only objecting here because it seems like this is the one where they could gain headway about it. Whereas Spotify's complaint is much more valid. And it, it and again, it comes back to my complaining earlier, like, what do I object to with the App Store rules? It's that prohibition against telling the user what their options are and what the rules are. Because Spotify has the same problem as that Netflix app, right? When you go to Spotify, if you've downloaded the app and haven't right. subscribed, they literally can't tell you that you can go sign up for Spotify over at Spotify.com. Right. And that to me was the basic gist of the EU complaint, which is that how is Spotify supposed to compete against Apple Music when Apple Music is the first party music platform doesn't have to pay 30% to anybody, whereas Spotify does, but their Spotify still owes the same royalties to the music people that any other streaming service would, but they also can't tell. And, and that to me, this is the key to the EU complaint is that it's the combination of, okay, Apple's in-app split is 70-30. That's a problem, but it's 
really an anti-competitive problem combined with the fact that they also prohibit Spotify from telling users you could just go to Spotify.com slash sign up and pay there and you'll get, you'll pay instead of $13 a month, you'll pay $10 a month or whatever the difference is. And so when you game all that out, do you imagine that Tim Cook and Eddie Q and I guess Phil Schiller are thinking, look, what we're inevitably going to be at is some compromise where we put up a billboard we, we allow them to put a billboard on their app saying you can go to whatever.com and we will lose some money there because people will figure out how to do that. But it, it'll still keep most of our business intact. I think so. I, and I, I honestly think they must be regretting at some degree and certainly some contingent must be regretting that they didn't do it already. Like one of the most interesting emails that came out in this last week was one from Phil Schiller all the way back in 2011, just spitballing the idea of, hey, are we sure 7030 is here forever across the board? I don't I I don't think it's tenable long term. And this is for, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years ago. We should start thinking about it so that if we are going to change it and hit one of it he just posits it as a spitball idea. But what if once Apple gets to a billion dollars run rate in terms of Apple's share of the split, if they just and the App Store keeps growing, what if they keep decreasing the split to 7525? 80-20 to keep Apple's run rate at a billion dollars. Now, that obviously didn't happen. I think the run rate now for the App Store is north of $10 billion a year. Um, and it's still mostly 70-30 with subscriptions going to 85-15 after the subscription is a year old. Uh, there's a small app developer program now where if you have under a million dollars in revenue, the developer can get 85-15 yep. across the board. But it's the thing that Schiller says in that email is if we're going to change, I think we should do it from a position of strength. Right. Let's weakness. do it on our own before and, we're pushed into doing it, which is where they're at now. Right. Or like the the Stone song, you know, I'd rather walk before you make me run. Great Keith Richards song. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. One of my favorites, a family favorite here in, in the Gruber household. But um it, it and I feel like that's where they are now. Now it's now they're at the point where you know, they could make such a change. They, you know, WWDC, their big developer conferences in a month, maybe to, almost to the day, they could make an announcement and say, hey, the app store is doing great. Developers are doing great. We just want to make things even better for everybody. Mm-hmm. So we're changing uh, the app store split to 80-20 and everything that used to be 85-15 is 90-10. And, you know, we think that's win, win, win for everybody. Developers will, you know, well, I guess they won't go nuts in person because yeah. the, the keynote won't be in person, but they'll they'll be clapping at home as they watch the live stream. Tim Cook is scheduled to testify at, at, at the end of the trial. Maybe he can roll it out then. Everybody will know that they're doing it in the face of regulation, which, but again, maybe, it, you know, so what? Okay, so we're doing it at the face, at, at sort of the point of a gun of regulators in the EU and, and America. But so what? But why not? do it. I, I, to me, it's it because it, the big question to me is, yes, it is leaving money on the table. Services is a big narrative for Apple. They're making a growing amount every year. But at some point, you have to balance the dollars from holding on to every single penny they can through the App Store with the damage it's doing to Apple's brand. It It is not a good look to be subject to these stories, nonstop stories about being sued by Epic, uh, EU regulators sending nasty, you know, rulings against the company. It's not a good look. How much of it is worth it to the Apple brand? 
Yeah, I would guess that if you polled most people right now, they they have either no awareness of this or a vague awareness of this. But this is also where Facebook was at a few years ago, where people were generally happy about Facebook. And eventually, if you read negative stories about Facebook over and over and over, it does change your opinion. It also helps if you hold Facebook responsible for, for electing Donald Trump. Uh, there's no version of that for Apple. And so I wonder if this will still be a super, super, you know, niche niche thing, but we'll see. I mean, it's certainly not good for Apple to be repeatedly called a monopolist and violating antitrust laws for multiple years, which is what we're looking at now. Right. And I and I also think that there's a reckoning within Apple that they really should look at the resentment that's grown slowly, but surely like any slow festering problem where, where so many developers resent Apple's 70-30 take now and, and don't see it in, in the way that it was seen in 2008 when it was new. And anybody who wanted to get software onto a mobile phone pre-iPhone had to deal with carriers, each mm -hmm. carrier, Verizon, then AT&T, then T-Mobile. Oh, and then we're going around the world outside uh, North America. Um, and each carrier took their own cut, which was obviously, you know, in those days, way more than a 70-30 cut in the favor of the developer. But that's 2008. That's that's a, a, a lifetime ago at this point. And, and the resentment among developers towards Apple over its stewardship of the App Store is significant. It really is. And, and I really do. That's one of my takeaways from this trial is that there's an awful lot of developers I see with their sort of hands in their pockets on the sidelines watching this who aren't necessarily rooting for Epic uh, to, to storm to victory. And they see that they're nodding their heads and going, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. John Gruber, I imagine that we would talk for 10 or 15 minutes for double that. Um, I understand that you normally do a two-hour podcast, mm -hmm. and I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. So we'll come back and we'll have a longer chat at some point. Thank you. Always good to talk to you, Peter. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to John Gruber. We're going to hear from Jill Lepore in a minute. But first, a word from a sponsor. I'm speaking with Jill Lepore, who I believe is the first professor of history we've had on this show, a Harvard historian, <laughs> no less. Welcome, Jill. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. You need to, you need to have more historians on. Yeah, I know. Um, I'll see if I can find some more. She's also a frequent <laughs> contributor to The New Yorker, and like everyone um, is now required to be, she's a podcaster. She's got an excellent show called The Last Archive. It's now in its second season, and you should go check it out. Um, Jill, tell us what The Last Archive is about, in your words. Yeah, The Last Archive is a, it's sort of a love letter to 1930s radio drama. The show has a very bizarre and uh, distinctive audio style. It's, um, uh, the first season was a whodunit. And uh, it's, although it's a history, it's a history that asks a particular question, which is who killed truth is, was the kind of whodunit of the first season. And the second season is investigating what happened over the course of the 20th century with the rise and emergence of new kinds of doubts, sort of how to go from kind of Enlightenment-era skepticism to 21st century chaos of doubt. So the show, you know, it's history, and it, it goes kind of decade by decade, both seasons, so over the course of the 20th century. But it's not like other, it's not sort of like me chatting like this with you, and it's not. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's scripted. It's no, it's scripted. Very, it's very it's, smart. And there's, there's a lot of um, reenactments, uh, audio reenactments, a little bit campy, of historical events. And the reason I wanted to have you on, in addition to being a fan of your, your work, particularly at The New Yorker, is 
truth and what happened to truth and what is truth is something we end up talking about a lot on the show because we're a media and tech show. So we spend a lot of time talking about Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg and QAnon. And these are all things happening in present tense. And like all good historians, you're talking about history, but you're really also talking about 2020, 2021. And so I wanted to sort of um, move back and forth between those eras and, and pick your brain. Um, I do want to ask you about something you talk about in the first episode of the new season, which is about the Scopes monkey trial. We can talk about that. But you've got a line in there early on where you said the last season, like you just said, was about truth and, and who killed it. And, and this one's about doubt and instability of knowledge. And I listened to it several times because I thought it was very provocative, but I'm not sure I fully understand the distinction. So can you explain what the dis the difference between the death of truth and the instability of knowledge are? They seem like they're kind of the same thing to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're right. They are. We sometimes have thought about the difference between the first season and the second season is starting out with your left foot instead of your right foot, which you're kind of mar enough. marching in the same direction. The podcast really emerged from a class I've taught for some years at the Harvard Law School on the history of evidence that looks at the rules for knowing things across different realms of knowledge. So the law, history, science, journalism, where we think of those today as really technologically determined matters, right? So we know that the rules are all screwed up because the rules are now not man-made, right? They're algorithmic. So I think we understand that. But the point of the podcast is to wrestle with that is to say how technologically determined some of those rules are today and how what the other means of that determination was in the past. So I guess the difference between the first season and the second season, the first season really was sort of looking at the establishment of rules. And it made the argument that one useful way, and this is how I teach the course that I've been teaching for years, to think about the history of knowledge is just conceptually, what if you reduce the elemental unit of knowledge to a thing, right? Like we call, you know, a watt is a unit of energy or calorie or, you know, a, a yard or a foot is a measure of distance. What's an elemental unit of knowledge? And the argument that I made in the series season that was about truth is that the elemental unit of knowledge has changed from um, the mystery of antiquity to the fact, the emergence of the fact and the culture of the fact in the Middle Ages and the age of empiricism facts in the age of quantification replaced by numbers, numbers in our modern era are really replaced by data, which is a kind of return to the age of mystery. So I have the, the first season of this very sort of particular argument about how we know things by way of what conceptual units do we use to determine a truth? Right? Is a truth a fact? When did that idea happen? Now, is when did truth become something that can be determined only by data? Something has to be data-based for it to be true. I'm having right? terrible flashbacks to college where I walked into a discussion uh, seminar without having done the reading for the entire semester and had to try to I bullshit know. my way I'm through. I'm sorry, you can bullshit. I'm sorry. I'm going to, to uh, it's, it is a kind of long story, but like, I, I actually think that that was a kind of big arc of the first season, which is like, mm -hmm. what's a meaningful way to think about the history of knowledge? Well, it was this idea that I used to illustrate like that you can think about how we think about knowledge has changed over time. And so the second season is is not sort of how we think about knowledge and how we know things. What is the unit of, tr of a truth? The second season is kind of a, the, the spread of doubt. Like all these things that we had ideas could be true. How did those things be kind of, how did those notions come to be unraveled over the course of the last century? So the idea that doubt is kind of a new idea 
idea struck me, and, and you talk about in the first episode of this season, which is about, again, the Scopus Monkey trial, which you talk about Socrates, like doubt is not a new idea, right? But is the idea that the sort of emergence of doubt or it's more widespread, has something happened to doubt recently that makes it more widespread? And by recently, it could be this year or the last hundred years, I guess. Yeah, I mean, all these things are always, always changing, right? I mean, you can go to any ancient literature and people talk about truth and doubt, right? Like, it's a part of how we exist as people that we we determine some whether something's true we begin to doubt whether something's true there the, the point of the second season of the podcast is to to think about if we just were to take the last century what are the signal moments where the scope of what we should doubt grew and so you kind of naturally begin there with darwinism right so the origin of species uh, in the 19th century, which, you know, many people took to undermine their faith uh, in a biblical account of creation. Other people said, well, it's entirely consistent with a biblical account of creation, like the, those one's a sort of a story and a myth that helps us to think about creation, and another is a, is, is a scientific theory that explains the fossil record. But it, it was a very explosive moment in the history of knowledge, Right. And uh, one of the arguments that I make in the last archive is that we see the repercussions of that. Like we're still, the aftershocks of Darwinism are still with us because they generate ultimately what the first culture war, which I identify, you know, with the Scopes trial in 1925. So I have a vague memory of growing up the 70s, learning about Darwinism and that replaced creationism as sort of the natural order of things. The Scope monkey trial, I have a vague memory of you know, somewhere in, I guess it's, it is Tennessee, uh, is requiring uh, people to teach evolution. And there's a teacher who doesn't want to teach, it's sorry, wants to teach uh, creationism. There's a teacher who doesn't want to teach it. There's a trial. It's kind of a show trial. I didn't even remember how it ended up. But it was, uh, in my mind, this was always, oh, this is just the march of reason, right? Mm -hmm. that, that things progress forward. Um, and you have a different take on it, right? First of all, you've got a whole bunch of nuance about the different characters and, and players in it. But I never really thought about it as sort of, undermining people's faith in religion um, and replacing it with something else. And so now when I think about reason being replaced with QAnon or whatever, does that seem like it's a, are, are we looping backwards into an earlier time or is this a, is this a remarching forward? We're sort of replacing one belief system with another belief system. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, um, Darwinism is an extraordinary scientific achievement by way of the offering, you know, the study of a, a significant body of evidence to offer up a theory that has extraordinary explanatory power. So in that sense, we would, we understand it as progress, right? Like in terms of you're like, it's a forward march through time. Like mm -hmm. we're going through, through, from superstition to reason. And I think that's normally how the story of, say, the Scopes trial is taught. And it, there's, that's a very satisfying explanation in a thousand different ways. The reason we decided to start the, the podcast with that story is it is a very oversimplified account of what the Scopes trial was really about and what it settled and what it didn't settle. One of the things that's so people forget that um, the Scopes trial was argued that, that a biology teacher who wanted to teach evolution was defended by Clarence Darrow, who's the most famous lawyer at the time. And the state of Tennessee brought in um, a guy known as Mr. Fundamentalist, William Jennings Bryan, long-term Democratic presidential candidate, to prosecute him. So it was really just a celebrity battle between, like, these incredibly well-known sort of superstar 
figures. And uh, Brian is a populist and a preacher right. and a fundamentalist. Right. Yeah. And so, but it just happened that, that Brian dies five days after the trial. And so it kind of gets, I don't know, implanted the imagination that somehow uh, fundamentalism lost and fundamentalism died in that moment, that Darrow so roundly defeated Brian in the trial that even though Scopes was not acquitted, he was convicted. Like he was, it kind of didn't matter. He was just, you know, kind of prop. The ACLU had kind of uh, arranged for the trial. Somehow the, the the lasting memory of the trial, oh yeah, well that's when, that's when reason killed fundamentalism. It was not actually, it just actually happened that just Brian happened to die. <laughs> fundamentalism didn't die. And if anything, it was much, um, animated by the challenge that was posed by the show trial. I I will say, like, <laughs> when the first time I had to teach the Scopes trial, all I really knew about it was I had watched the Spencer Tracy movie, Inherit the Wind, which I remember loving as a kid. Which is, what, 1960-something? Yeah, yeah, 1960s. Like, it's an incredible movie, but it was written during the McCarthy era and really just turned the Scopes story as a into an allegory for McCarthy. Uh, it really has very little to do, to do with the trial. So in, in researching the episode, I learned it was the very first trial in American history that was broadcast on the radio. Radio was new. It was broadcast all over the country. And so I think, you know, a kind of challenge is what does it mean to hold a trial where, and I think in our terms, we can see how this might be the case. Think about, say, the, the Christine Blasey Ford, Brett Kavanaugh hearings, right, where People all over the country watched. I remember being on Amtrak train. Everybody was watching it. And kind of half the people thought she was telling the truth and half the people thought he was telling the truth. Like it was this act of spectatorship in which we were witnessing the competing accounts of different understandings of the world. And it didn't resolve the culture war that that it was a kind of... um, kind of, you know, knock em sock em version of. I think that was also the case with the Scopes trial. Like, people listened to it, and if you sided with Brian, you thought Brian won. And if you sided with Darrow, you thought Darrow won. It's just that the press was really run by people who sided with Darrow. I mean, the national press. Um, so it has a kind of funny legacy, but I think it's useful to restore to our mind that one of the things, kind of technologically speaking, that's weird about radio is we're all sharing an like much like the sort of sharing an experience. Uh, it's being pumped into our houses, but we can experience it really differently. So it didn't crush doubt in evolutionary theory. Um, it didn't sow doubt in evolutionary theory, but it actually didn't really change what was the kind of the, the state of the debate. It's just kind of moved it on to kind of kicked it down the road. Like we're still having that debate. So this and this is one of the things I want to talk to you about was this idea of broadcasting the trial and everyone getting the information at the same time but still not agreeing on it. Um, there is a old-fashioned view of looking at the world that some people have today that says, oh, the, the things went south in, in, in our country and our ability to understand things when we went from having Walter Cronkite and a couple of white guys with square jaws and baritone voices announce the news to us. And now everyone has, a, there's a million different versions of the news and, and that's bad. And there's a more nuanced version or more updated version of that argument, but it's the same thing. It says, we no longer have shared facts right? Smart people like Barack Obama say that. Um, but historically, is that accurate? Is that, it, was it sort of a monolithic way of looking at the world that has now been atomized or or has it always been a mix of competing viewpoints depending on who you talk to and where you were in the world? 
So what both of those views shares is an understanding that the era of what we call broadcast journalism from really 1945 to about 1975, that is kind of, you know, just before TV, but during the age of radio, really network radio, through the beginnings of cable television, there was an incredible stability in the United States in terms of the media landscape, but also in terms of political polarization. So between 1945 and 1975, political polarization was at the lowest it's ever been in the history of the country. And so was income inequality. And those two things track each other extremely well. By the time you get to the end of that era, income inequality is rising, political polarization is rising, and the places that people get their information from are exploding, really because of the remote control and cable television. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of really interesting arguments about that, and I'm happy to talk about those. But I think one thing that is important to remember about it is that that didn't just, like, somehow happen, right? That era of, and whether you think that was a good era or a bad era, right, like, it, it shares really meaningful characteristics, it was the result of specific policies and that before that time, there was a tremendous amount of chaos and also a lot of experimentation and also an extraordinary amount of propaganda, right? And two world wars. So, and after that time, it looks much more similar to, like that time looks like the exception rather than the rule, in other mm-hmm. words. So, right, it's a, colonial America, you would you would have all kinds of different competing newspapers based on your political ideology and that was accepted and standard. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm sort of specifically thinking about the beginning of the 20th century. You know, anybody can get a radio license. It's kind of crazy. People are doing all kinds of experiments on the radio. Uh, There's a real explosion in the growth of newspapers. People have newspapers that are partisan. Some newspapers are not partisan. But what happens slowly over those years is a growing awareness of the power, especially of mass communications, right, which doesn't really exist until that point. And that anxiety becomes greater the more Americans are observing developments in Europe, right? So the reason that the American broadcast media landscape from 1945 to 1975 is extremely well-regulated is Nazism. It's the fact that the FCC in the 1930s started listening to Nazi radio broadcasts and, and collecting them. They record them on these, you know, wax cylinders or they, they, they kept records of them and really started to think about how much damage mass communications could do, how much it could distort people's sense of what was really going on in the world, what the force of propaganda really was. So the kind of terror of watching what mass communication could do in the hands of dictators led the U.S. to have an extremely highly regulated broadcast industry, and that lasted for decades. And when it became unraveled, you know, then you kind of get down to to where we are today. And I, so, I, I mean, I think they're real. Obviously, is you, you know better than anyone, the policy questions about what to do about that are complicated because the critique of the era of broadcast journalism is twofold, right? Like on the one hand, conservatives said, conservative voices are not heard, right? Like this, this, this represents mm-hmm. a liberal consensus, And so they therefore argued, you know, were among those arguing for the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, which had emerged in 1949 as a kind of anti-Nazi sort of version of of a way to regulate the media. But on the other hand, there's criticism from the left because people on the left said, like, this is why it took so long for civil rights to succeed because of the, the constraints of this form of broadcasting. Like, it was a liberal consensus. It excluded the far right and it excluded the left. 
and that then, therefore, the era after 1975 is an era of triumph by that account. I think those are those are really hard historical questions to look at, but they remain really urgent to think about. So you're talking about diversity of viewpoints, and this is one of the things that frustrates me often about the debate that we have now is there's like, oh, the, there's the West Coast viewpoint versus the East Coast or, you know, the, the, the new thinkers in, in technology versus the stodgy old institutions. And if that was the only part of the debate, I, I think it'd be fine and kind of mostly academic and fine to experiment. But we're, when we're talking about transmissions of fact, right, that's that's very different. And maybe you can't, maybe the two aren't, you can't extricate the two from each other. But it's not as if people who are into QAnon have a different view about states' rights um, versus versus somebody else, right? They view they believe in an entirely different reality. Um, and then we just spent the last four years where you had the President of the United States proposing alternate realities to the ones you could see and observe. Is there a historical precedent for that where people literally are not looking at the same thing? You know, even to be as, as crude about this as to say, well, I believe in slavery and I don't. Like, at least you're talking about the same thing in theory. Um, did we have things where people looked at something that was, um, you know, black and said, I think that's white? That sort of disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's distinctive about our era is that everybody theoretically has a voice, right? So, up until 1965, you know, black people in most parts of the country can't vote, right? They, they're not running for office. They're not able to be elected to office. Like the political process is not working for them. Mm-hmm. So it's really after that era that suddenly there's a kind of cacophony around, like people have wholly different interpretations of what's going on in the world. Um, but that's because people's interpretations can be heard for the first time. Like, I don't actually think that there is suddenly, just lately, for the first time ever in the history of humanity, people have really entirely different ways of thinking about what's going on in the world. It's just that we now are all kind of in a media sense, kind of enfranchised, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody can have their Facebook post and post it. And every people are much more radically manipulable. And there can be a kind of critical mass. People can get together when they disagree with one another. We looked at it in the podcast in the second season. We looked at kind of in close detail at the genesis of the the theory that the moon landing was a hoax. And it's really interesting because there's this woman, Mae Brussel, who's a, a conspiracy theorist, and she lives in California. She's a housewife. And she has a radio show that doesn't really have a particularly national reach. It's a local radio show. But she's an indefatigable conspiracy theorist. And she you can sort of see, even just with her broadcast, so when this guy who writes this book, We Never Went to the Moon, Bill Kasich, in the 1970s, that I think is like self-published and there's no reason to think anybody would read it. Um, she basically reads most of it aloud on her radio show. There's this way that you can kind of amplify a completely cockamamie story through a mm-hmm. medium that that carries its own legitimacy. I mean, remember when the internet first started, people were like, well, it must be true. I read it on the internet, which was like a joke, like a meme kind of joke. Mm-hmm. But it also people kind of meant it because you noticed that kids would like look something up and they would believe it because they found it on the internet. Still radio, happening? Yeah. Radio still had that in the 60s. Like, I heard it on the radio. It must be true. The moon landing never happened. And so there are these technologies that work to amplify whole worldviews that are oppositional to like an established body of facts but they are also using some of the very same techniques that, again, like have emerged from the, the, the argument that I make in the second season is that 
most of the kind of expansion of spheres of doubt has to do with the disruptions of wars. The First World War, the Second World War, the Cold War, and, and the Vietnamese War, in the Vietnam War. Um, so that, like, there was this incredibly splashy book published, it must have been like 1939, called The Strategy of Terror, which said, you know, the problem with Nazism is it's, we would call it a perception hack, right? Like, you don't need to, perception hack means it doesn't matter if the Russians interfered in the 2016 election. They convinced a lot of people that they interfered in the 2016 election, and therefore people don't have faith in elections anymore, right? That's a perception hack. Yep. So the strategy of terror was like the first articulation of the idea of a perception hack. Like the Nazis like sent all these broadcasts to France to say like, we're going to kick your ass. You might as well give up now. And the French gave up. And that's the strategy of terror. And American journalists said, well, to fight against the strategy of terror, that is people lying, just disregarding whole truths and making up an artificial reality, we need to pursue the strategy of truth. And that will be the aim of American journalism, that if we give people the bare facts and the true facts, then they can make their own decisions. And, that, you know, that is what good journalism is meant to be. But the guy who came up with that expression, the strategy of truth, was later appointed by FDR to the head of what was called the Office of Facts, the Office of Facts and Figures. That's and his great. Job, Sounds Orwellian. Right? Like, his job was to basically run PR once the U.S. entered the war. And there were things he just was like, but wait, this isn't the strategy of truth. Like, there was um, there was an incredible rubber shortage in the U.S., and they really needed rubber for tanks. But FDR didn't want anybody to know there was a rubber shortage because it was just too vulnerable for the Allies. So he told the Office of Facts, tell everybody there's a gasoline shortage, and they won't drive as much, and then we'll have enough rubber for our tanks. And the guy from the Office of Facts like, that's not the strategy of truth. But like, war requires even good people to lie. And then they develop more and more sophisticated means to doing that lying. And then there's a kind of peacetime conversion of those methods, right? You even you see that during the Cold War, right? Like, this, that, that's what Russians are doing now. We do that now. And in the U.S., it's kind of turned in on, our, in on ourselves. Like, that's how we engage in partisan warfare now. It used to be how we engaged in propaganda with our adversaries. Now it's how the parties do battle with each other. So you sum up the first season saying, you know, we want to figure out who killed truth. Was it postmodernism or Mark Zuckerberg or Donald Trump? And we conclu you conclude it's everybody, sort of. There is this impulse to blame Mark Zuckerberg the most, at least among sort of my peers. I think it's mostly because it's the thing they can see. It's the thing that's easiest for them to see. Do you think that's true that he is the most responsible? And by by him, I guess we're just in, in, substituting internet, right? Him and internet are kind of the same thing, the sort of dispersion uh, of, of information and sort of acceleration of, of of all those different viewpoints. Does that sound right to you? Or do you think it's, it, you can't, that everyone is equally responsible or all these different forces are equally responsible? Um, I think the temptation to blame Zuckerberg is is one I share. Partly is this nice to have a villain and he, uh, there's a sort of comic book quality about the guy that mm -hmm. is kind of super villainy. I, you know, I also think it's to some degree misplaced. I would point to the 1996 Telecommunications Act and in particular to Newt Gingrich. And, um. The, also a good villain. Yeah. Also a good villain. I mean, look at the hair. But, but I think that what, you know, what Gingrich was really trying to do and in a strange way found common cause with, the left, especially with the counterculture left, has been often pointed out, is to say, you know, freedom means 
not having editors, not having anybody interfere with what you want to say and finding your bliss and doing your thing. And so therefore we will have this new wild west, this new frontier of, of the world, of the internet that will be entirely unregulated. And that is how we will know we are free. And, you know, it really was an anarchist commitment. I mean, it was the, the extreme version of a kind of Reagan anti-government position that met up with, you know, the extreme version of a counterculture uh, anti-establishment position. You're also kind of describing Silicon Valley, right? It's some right. combination of it's, Ayn Rand yeah. and, and uh, exactly. you know, Whole Earth Catalog. Exactly. So those people set up the infrastructure that makes it possible for Zuckerberg to do what he's going to do. I mean, I think that, you know, for Zuckerberg and Facebook, like, the social is an, is an elaborate thing that, you know, people spend a lot of time thinking about how do we create a just society? Like, this is what philosophy and religion is for and how we think through these problems. And the idea that you would reinvent the social without thinking about its consequences is really strange to me unless, I mean, like, and, and therefore seems blameworthy. Like, how dare you think that you could just reinvent how, what, like, we're going to make the world a better place by connecting everybody to everybody else? What? Like, who thinks that's going to be a good thing? But that's the reason we have the law of unintended consequences, right? right. I mean, everyone does right. it. But, but the reason that he's able to do that is because of Gingrich, right? And the kind, this kind of libertarian vision that, you know, Bill Clinton signs that law because he's a, Al Gore invented the internet. Like, I, I, I think that is, to me, the kind of big bang moment. So 25 years later now, we're finally trying to put that genie back in the bottle or modify the genie, pick whatever metaphor you want, right? There's serious discussions about, among other things, reforming that 1996 law, that's Section 230 you always hear talk about. Um, do you think it's remotely plausible that, that people in Washington are going to get together since they don't have shared realities and, and figure out a way to modify that law? Yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I, I think we have... Um, I mean, I'm not like a big advocate of the everything is broken argument, right? Like I know it feels that way and objectively a lot of things are broken. <laughs> a lot of things are broken. But I actually think, I once wrote an essay about radical pessimism called No, We Can't, in which, you know, like I mean, the obvious argument about radical pessimism is, you know, you get what you wish for. Like if you don't think anything can get better, it's not going to get better. Can I picture the political settlement whereby people who are currently holding office as members of Congress come up with a great solution to the problem of Section 230? No, <laughs> I can't. Mm -hmm. But am I committed to the, uh, the possibility? You bet. That That is about as optimistic a note as I think we're going to get out of this conversation. I think <laughs> you should end it there. Um, Jill, you're great. Thank you. Your podcast is great. It's the last archive. It's rolling out now. You had to make it in, 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 in quarantine and pandemic and lockdown, and I have great empathy for that because I'm sitting on my, my bedroom yeah. floor talking to yeah. you as we do it. We're getting out one day. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Jill Lepore, who was kind to me as I struggled to keep up with her. Um, thanks again to you guys for listening. Thanks to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing. Thanks to our sponsors who allow us to listen to this podcast for free. This is Recode Media. I'm going to see you at least once next week, probably twice, though. I think we got two cool interviews coming up next week. So we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.